Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get into the episode, a shout out to Nicole for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you for supporting the show, Nicole, and all our patrons. Uh, and we hope you enjoy your newsletter and your bonus exclusive content. Yeah, thank you. Um, there are a bunch of ways you can support The Dirt if you enjoy what we do. First and foremost, and free, all three Fs, you can listen to the show, leave stars and reviews on your podcast platform of choice, and tell everyone you meet about us. You can also join our Patreon at a bunch of tiers, starting at $1 a month, and you'll get some nifty bonus content as a thank you from us. And finally, you can sponsor an episode. Is there a topic you're dying to hear us cover on the dirt and you can't wait around for us to coincidentally cover it? Does your partner or bestie or mom or dad or uncle or grandma have a birthday coming up? We love when listeners introduce us to topics we might not come up with otherwise. And so for a minimum donation of $25, we will cover pretty much any topic of your choosing. You can go to thedirtpod.com slash sponsor to learn more. And in case you were thinking, I wish I had an example of a sponsored episode. <laughs> oh, the type of thing that we will research and write about. Yeah. Um, well, you're in luck because this very episode is, in fact, a sponsored one. So many thanks to listener Melanie, who wrote into the show. Hello, lovely hosts. Hi. Oh, hello, Melanie. I would like to sponsor an episode on maroon societies. I've been fascinated by them since I read a Smithsonian article about them years ago. I was intrigued by the idea of painstakingly recovering the artifacts of a group of people who had deliberately chosen the most hostile environment around for their home. I know maroon societies form throughout the Americas, and I'd love to learn more about the archaeology and anthropology of them. I know this is pretty darn specific, but I'd love to hear your take. No, specific is good. Specific is good. Um, so yeah. So thanks, thanks, Melanie. Yeah, this, thank uh, you. This is great. Yeah. So we're going to do this in three parts in just one episode this time. This isn't going to turn into a three episode series. <laughs> First, we're going to define and sort of cover the historical context of maroon communities. Then my cat's going to yell. They're all in here. Everyone's in here. All right. Well, there might just be some ambient meowing. Ambient meowing. So first, we're going to define and cover the historical context of maroon communities, and then we'll talk about some of the unique demands or challenges of the archaeological exploration of maroon sites with a few case studies. And then finally, we'll talk about how archaeologists and anthropologists have historically approached this topic and the changes to those approaches that current scholars are trying to make. So there's a caveat that comes along with this. The reason that we're covering a lot more about the research approaches to this topic is that neither Amber nor I are experts in the history, lives, experiences, or continuing legacies of maroon societies. So in this episode, we're going to highlight the work of a few people who are experts, and we have lots and lots of show notes for you to dive deeper. If you'd like to do that, you can go to the, the episode webpage on thedirtpod.com. And so what we can speak to are archaeological practice and methods and theory. So that is the plan. Yeah. Um, and as promised, first some history and context. And um, another special shout out, a, a thank you. Um, he may not listen to this, but... Well, um, if he ever does. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, right around the same time that we, uh, got this, this submission, this listener, uh, request, um, 
that was at the beginning of the semester and someone that I know, a uh, history professor, Ignacio Gallup Diaz, um, like posted something about his syllabus of like, and at least one week, possibly much of the class, uh, covered this topic. And so I reached out to him and was like, what timing? Uh, and he, <laughs> Sources, please. Yeah, he sent over a few citations uh, by way of introduction to the topic. Mm-hmm. And we are so grateful for that. Yes. Um, so, yeah, if you, uh, you can f- find Ignacio Gallup Diaz on Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> and thank him there. Um, so history and context. Broadly, maroons... Um, spelled like the color in English. Uh, so Maroons refers to descendants of enslaved Africans who were able to escape from enslavement and for, and form settlements of their own. Oh, sorry. Typo. Uh, Maronage is the word that refers to the process of self-liberation and settlement. These enclaves were typically in very hard to reach, hard to survive in, or otherwise undesirable locations. Uh, Intentionally so, it seems. Yes. Uh, Maroon settlements were established throughout the Americas, uh, and particularly in the Caribbean and in Brazil, which makes sense given the, like, scale of of the, uh, of enslavement. um, Yeah, we'll we'll get to a couple of figures that just really sort of impress upon... One, the enormity. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you are a product of the like US uh, public education system, you almost certainly have uh, no conception of, of um, the enormity of that Mm -hmm. undertaking. The, the self liberated Africans and, and African um, diaspora um, often intermixed with indigenous groups in these areas of refuge. Um, often melding traditions and languages into Creole cultures that still exist today. There were also maroon communities in Africa comprised of people who had escaped from slave raiders along interior trading routes. Yeah, we're going to, there are some resources in the show notes about some of these um, African um, maroon communities, but we're not focusing so much on those in this episode. Um, the archaeological case studies we'll be sharing later on in this episode come from some locations in the Caribbean, but also from a place called the Great Dismal Swamp, uh, which is an extremely swampy, as you may guess, um, area that straddles the borders of Virginia and North Carolina, which are two states on the Atlantic coast in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now managed as a protected wildlife refuge, and that's why archaeologists have been able to work there. The origin of the word maroon is uncertain, with competing theories linking it to Spanish, um, Arawak, or Taino root words. Uh, Maroon and Seminole likely share the same etymology in the Spanish word cimarron, meaning wild or untamed. Yeah, or sometimes uh, feral is also used. Um, Is that the type of horse? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they're feral horses? Mm-hmm. Cimarron? Yeah. Okay. But uh, sometimes that word is used to refer to human beings. Uh, yep. So there is a shared theme in accounts of maroon history of these communities gradually becoming more and more of a challenge or threat to the colonizers uh, and slavers from whom they had liberated themselves. In many cases, the maroon communities became militarized. So I'm going to quote here from an essay by Richard Price uh, on the Smithsonian Folklife page. So Price is an American anthropologist and historian, uh, best known for his studies of the Caribbean and his experiments with writing ethnography. Seems that he works a lot on uh, in Martinique. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's done lots and lots of writing about maroon communities, um, and we'll be hearing a bit more from him later in this section. Um, and um, his wife also does yep. uh, like work on like textile stuff in maroon communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, um, he is also a white guy, um, which itself isn't a bad thing. No, um, no. So he's, 
So he is, uh, and so we say that up front because he is external to these communities, um, as are the other researchers that we're going to mention here. So let's just keep that in mind and um, maybe we can come back around Mm -hmm. to a conversation about that at the end. But first, Mm -hmm. a quote from Dr. Price. Many Maroons developed extraordinary skills in guerrilla warfare to the bewilderment of their colonial enemies, whose rigid and conventional tactics were learned on the open battlefields of Europe. These highly adaptable and mobile warriors took maximum advantage of local environments, (laughs) (laughs) which, yep. That turns out that if that, that's how you defeat a European army anywhere (laughs) up until the pretty much the 20th century, act like you've been there is the, (laughs) is the way to hide in a ditch and wait for a straight line of Um, white guys to come marching at you. Yeah. Like overdressed people um, who are sick. Um, (laughs) They're just pooping themselves to death. So um, continuing the quote, they struck and withdrew with great rapidity, making extensive use of ambushes to catch their adversaries and crossfire. They fought only when and where they chose, relying on trustworthy intelligence networks among non-maroons, both slaves and white settlers, and often communicating military information by drums and horns. Yeah. And we know that because some of these horns have been found. So we'll, that'll come back. Chekhov's horn. In many cases, these guerrilla tactics and gradual wearing down of the colonial military forces in these more remote locations were really successful. Uh, The slavers or colonizers were eventually forced to negotiate with the maroon societies to end hostilities. So here's Richard Price again, quote, In their typical form, such treaties, which we know of from Brazil, Colombia, Cuba, Ecuador, Hispaniola, Jamaica, Mexico, and Suriname, offered Maroon communities their freedom, recognized their territorial integrity, and made some provision for meeting their economic needs. In return, the treaties required Maroons to end all hostilities toward the plantations, to return all future runaways, and often to aid the whites in hunting them down. End quote. I mean, um, as um, I, f- I feel many of our indigenous friends and listeners can attest um Anybody can make a treaty. Yeah. You can break it just as easily. Um, so are these like uh, BS treaties? I or? don't. Yeah. I don't know to what extent um, they were like binding, like what the what the punishments were yeah, if they Yeah. Because it's, it's hard to um, it's hard to see a treaty as like a document um, between equals. When yeah. One it's not. Si- well, it's, no. Like when one side doesn't see the other side as a human right, being. Yeah. So, uh, but many other times, despite the Maroon communities fighting back against their oppressors, they were overpowered by the colonizers or slavers' military resources. So to get a sense of what life would have been like for these self-liberated inhabitants of Maroon societies, we have to look to the archaeological record. For the most part, these are not communities who created written histories. They were written about, but not from their own perspective. So the historical record is, unsurprisingly, a bit biased. So we're going to take a quick ad break and then we will get into the archaeology. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. We are back. And um, grab those waist-high waders out of the back of your closet because we are headed to the Great Dismal Swamp for some archaeology. Uh, so the researcher whose work we're following for this part of the episode is Dan Sayers, who's a historical anthropologist and chair of the anthropology department at American University in Washington, D.C. Um, he is also, uh, as it is relevant here, a white guy. Yep. Um, which, interesting. Interesting. So it's estimated that around 50,000 people escaped and formed free communities in this area. So the Great Dismal Swamp area, mm-hmm. um, which once spanned 2,000 square miles. And that is um, in what's today uh, Virginia and North Carolina. Yeah, right right on the border. Um So today, there are just 190 square miles of protected land. Since 2003, a group of archaeologists has been conducting research in the Great Dismal Swamp to establish the history of maroon societies there and try to bring to light what life was like for people living in the swamps. There are historical documents that detail what some of the maroon communities were like. Uh, These are from external sources, though. uh, So white aristocratic slave owners, mostly. Um, So... Uh, it's not reliable. It's not clear how reliable their accounts are, and also like they have a, a vested interest in this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so one account that does seem to be a bit more helpful is a dissertation from 1979 by a slightly odd historian uh, named Hugo Prosper Leeming. Leeming was a white Unitarian minister who was also who also somehow managed to get accepted into a black Muslim temple in Chicago. Um, so he wore a fez with his ministerial robes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he was doing like an interfaith thing. Yeah. Um, in his dissertation later published as a book, he presents a detailed account of maroon history in the swamp with a list of prominent chiefs and vivid descriptions of Africanized religious practices. Um, so like syncretic religious practices, not like like religious practices that will like kill you if they sting you. No, that's not in this context. That is not what Africanized means. No, um, just sort of um, picking up on links between um, social structure and, and religion in these communities in comparison with surprise, surprise, the African communities yeah. from, from whence these people yeah. came. So that's called syncretism yeah. where you pull uh, um, at perhaps um, what may seem externally like discordant, or like incompatible um, religious practices and rituals and like the stuff that comes along with them Mm -hmm. uh, to, to forge something that's reflective of the users and sort of the worshipers um, like lived experience, like the the fullness of the Mm -hmm. experience um, with its, its various roots. Um, So we'll link to this in the show notes, but there's a video online that documents Dan Sayers work and provides context from historians and descendant community members. Um, And so here's the log line quote, this film landscape of power, freedom and slavery in the great dismal swamp summarizes the three year archeological field study of the great dismal swamp in Southern Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, conducted by Professor Daniel Sayers and his team through an NEH, so National Endowment for Humanities, mm-hmm. We the People grant, drawing on the major research findings that for the first time established occupation by maroon communities in the swamp for more than 200 years, the film carries to the public a story of agency, resistance, and resilience among escaped slaves. Choosing, choosing heat, insects, wild animals, and the unknown swamp over plantation life Hmm. slaves defined their masters and chose freedom end quote yeah so setting aside the phrase choosing over plantation life Uh, um, mm -hmm. let's let's Mm -hmm. get into it one of the most important things that comes up in the in the video and is sort of the the whole sort of linchpin to dancer's work is that 
um, maroon communities have their own history. They have this, and and we'll get into kind of a discussion of the the impl- the impact, the cultural impact, and the implications of of this community of sort of uh, self liberating sort of people defiant against the slavery. Which yeah, one of the most important things is that. It's changing the narrative of sort of slave as victim, which is not to say in any way that people who were affected by the slave trade were not victims, but, um, well, not victimized, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yes. And, and so that leaves out kind of the other side of that, which is stories of resilience. The archeology span of the great dismal swamp is meant to kind of shed light on that resilience and creativity by, by looking for you know, remnants of these lives and trying to document where and when these people were kind of eking out this existence or sometimes thriving in these very inhospitable places. Uh, Yeah. Well, okay. And then it it also makes sense that um, by uh, excavating and interpreting sort of material evidence of their survival, you are looking at a group of survivors. Yeah, And that's something to, um, that, yeah, like if their entire, um, if the entire kind of like identity of an enslaved person is wrapped up in their slave, their enslavement. Yeah. And like the second that they leave the equation of, of being a slave, they just cease to exist because like we only understand them in context of their slavery. Yeah. Um, like this is how, cause the, these communities that formed and then, uh, like generate subsequent generations were not escaped slaves. No, they were, they were like members of maroon communities. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that, that's something that, um, forces, um, an external observer to come to terms with the fact that like they were actual people involved yeah. and not just sort of, uh, statistics or like data points in a sort of, um, what some might consider an unimaginably cruel or like, un- like it's impossible to like even think about mm-hmm. or like unpleasant to think about. Sure. Um, and so like sort of the other side of that coin of not seeing them as people is not seeing like not being able to acknowledge that uh, degree of, of violence yeah. um, towards them. Yeah. Um, so the, the weird, weird thing about the unknown swamp over plantation yeah, life, like I, like, I just like, don't somebody, somebody I did that weird in the copy. I don't, yeah, I, I don't, don't, I, yeah. Like that's just sort of like odd choice, but, but I, I think that maybe uh, somebody was uh, showing their butt there, <laughs> um, as we say, because there is a, uh, there are these, um, uh, one could argue, unnecessary uh, conversations that happen around uh, saying like, well, not all um, like slaveholders treated their slaves poorly and like they treated them like, Mm. you know, employees. And, you know, like there are these conversations around like degrees of humanity um, sort of extended to enslaved populations, Mm. which I think – Really, the only thing that I think that we should take away from any of those conversations is to take a harder look at current employment practices if mm. we feel that they are like if, – if we feel that we can compare them in the same breath to the institution of chattel slavery, uh, which I don't necessarily think we can. But, you know, there are some um, – like the, the what they're trying to say is not necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, but, but yeah, these, these conversations around like, well, you know, their life wasn't – like it wasn't all that bad. It's like, well, there is sort of this like fundamental problem underlying undergirding the whole thing, which yeah. is like you have no autonomy, and yep. uh, just because like other people also didn't have autonomy because they were like a, a victim of like the economy and like the economic machine, uh, doesn't mean it's the same thing as being enslaved. Nope. Uh, and so. Yeah, like, I, I think that, but, but also like this conversation of like, like, I hate to break it to you, but a lot of Virginia and, um, and North Carolina is like, 
Swampy. It's, it's kind of swampy. It's not like a I mean, swamp. It's, it's not a swamp in like the geographic sense, but it is like... No, it, but the, it, like the there's bugs, ecosystem. there's humid. Yeah, there's like there's a lot of humidity. Um, yeah. But something that the um, that a maroon community has that a plantation doesn't have is no slavery. Right. So, uh, so I don't. See the, the, I don't the really pros see the, versus the cons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to like make a pro con list of be like, well, um, they had to deal with like on uh, like in the the maroon communities, they had to deal with uh, scarce resources. Yeah, they had to deal and with itchiness, pretty like, much. Uh, like they had, you know, there are all these challenges. But then on the other side, uh, there is slavery? actual slavery. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know. So the, the Great Dismal Swamp was um, occupied by maroon communities from the 1600s all the way to the end of the Civil War. Yeah. Um, and and there are descendant communities. Yes. But, like there. People are still. But but yeah. In the so area. Yeah. People are like joining maroon communities as 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 long as as well for much of the time that slavery was happening in mm-hmm. um, the the eastern U.S. Um so Dan Sayer and his team um, was excavating on a 20-acre island off the North Carolina coast. So the elevation is about 3,000 feet. Uh, so the team have to they had to hike up there every day with their equipment, which, woof, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, and and the reason for that is that um, if you think about an environment that is kind of mixed, low, kind of very swampy, or even just underwater areas the place where you might want to look for signs of inhabitants is, is on high ground. And so basically. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is this is more of like um, an archeological investigation, like it's more of like where they looked versus where people lived. No, where they lived tended to be on higher ground because it's easier to have houses stick around if they're not constantly flooding. Mm, Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, this is a, historical site but the material culture like the the sort of the archaeological record of the object this site um it doesn't look like a lot of its uh contemporaneous sites because there's like very little in the way of uh, mass-produced materials like bricks nails and stuff that you would find Um, yeah clay pipe stems yeah so um instead they eschewed the trappings of the outside world you know, the Marin communities. The, yeah. Well, the outside world being, oh yeah, it's labor, slavery. Yep. yep sure. Um, and they raised animals, farmed corn and sunflowers. They built structures and they lived in fairly large groups. Um, often they would be using found tools made and discarded by indigenous people living in the area hundreds or perhaps even thousands of years before. Yeah. Here's a section of a Smithsonian article that describes what the material finds from the site look like. It's really not substantial. Quote, Sayers pulls out a stone arrowhead about an inch long, one side chipped away to form a tiny curved knife or scraper. He says, in the interior of the swamp, there was only one source of stone. Tools left behind by indigenous Americans. Maroons would find them, modify them, and keep using them until they were worn down into tiny nubs. Nothing was more exciting than finding the footprints of seven cabins at the nameless site in the 1660 to 1860 range. Sayers said, quote, we know from documents that Maroons were living in the swamp then. There's no record of anyone else living there. It's certainly not the type of place that you would make a choice to live in unless you needed to hide. He pulls out a disc of plain earth-colored Native American pottery the size of a large cookie. And he said, quote, Maroons would find ceramics like this and jam them down into the post holes of their cabins to shore them up. This is probably the largest item we've found. End quote. Then he shows me a tiny rusted copper bead, perhaps worn as jewelry, and another bead fused to a nail. The artifacts keep getting smaller, flakes of pipe clay, gunflint particles from the early 19th century when the outside world was pushing into the swamp. Sayers said, quote, everything we found would fit into a single shoebox, and it makes sense. They were using organic materials from the swamp, except for the big stuff like cabins, it decomposes without leaving a trace. End quote. And so, based on more than 10 years of research from Sayer's team, there seems to be continuous occupation of the Great Dismal Swamp until after the Civil War, at which point the archaeological material tapers off. So it's very likely that after emancipation, most of these maroon community members gradually worked their way 
back into society and back into parts of the world where uh, it was a little easier to subsist. Yeah. And so as we mentioned earlier, another major region for Maronage was the Caribbean. Um, So we're talking here about the region that encompasses the island and mainland areas from the Florida Keys south to northern South America. So that includes the Bahamas, Barbados, Jamaica, uh, Guyana, Suriname. Uh, These are all broadly described as Caribbean, um, even though there's a huge variety of cultures, geographies, histories, people, languages, um, all of that in the region, historically as well as today. So Mm -hmm. we'll do a brief survey of some of the archaeology of Marinage in the Caribbean. And then ideally, uh, we will find a guest for an upcoming episode who does related work who can tell us more than the small number of articles we found while researching. Is that you? Are you that person? Is that someone you know? Uh, do you or they want to talk to us? We would love that. Yeah. So um, if so, email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. So first up, we've got Barbados. So Barbados is pretty small and it doesn't have the mountains, dense forests or extensive cave systems that other Caribbean islands do. But it has Rihanna. It does have Rihanna. Yes. <laughs> And presumably Rihanna's small child whenever that baby gets born. Oh, that's going to be a Taurus baby. We're all so blessed. (laughs) Okay. Apart from Rihanna. um, So given the the geography and topography of Barbados, uh, that meant that the formation of long-term maroon communities was a bit trickier. In the early decades of colonization, uh, marinage in Barbados involved small bands of of runaways or self-liberated people yep. um, that lived in the island's forested interior areas and survived by raiding farms and plantations for food and supplies. By the 1670s, as sugar cultivation expanded, uh, as it were, um, the island was deforested to plant Sugar cane on it and bring slaves to work it. Um, So that not only changed the environment, but also how marinage was accomplished. Slaves continued to run away, but with the clearing of the forest, they found other places to seek refuge, including caves scattered about the island, uh, ditches, and ravines. So I'm going to quote now from an article by Teresa Ann Singleton in, and I'm, Sorry to the Portuguese language in <laughs> Revista do Museo Arqueologia e Etnologia. Um, archaeologists have not intentionally studied maroons in Barbados, but discovered caves containing archaeological materials presumably associated with runaways while excavating nearby plantations. These artifact assemblages usually include arrays of metal objects, like, like tools and iron pots, bottles, and a few clothing and adornment items like buttons and beads. Archaeological investigation of the Barbadian caves has generated two possible interpretations for its use. These sites provided temporary refuges uh, for slave runaways on the borderlands of plantations. Second, they were used as secret gathering places for the enslaved, where the primary activity may have been drinking alcoholic beverages based on the large numbers of bottles and other beverage containers recovered from these caves. Um, end quote. Sure, maybe they drank alcoholic beverages. That is one interpretation. Maybe they also um, had bo- like bottles of water that would have served as um, reservoirs for uh, water that would condense off the cave roof. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because you have to find sources of drinkable water. And if you are in kind of a swampy area, that's difficult. Yeah, or you're, you know, up against the ocean. Yeah, also not more likely notably less, less drinkable than freshwater. Yep. Yeah, um, and let's move on to Jamaica. Um, I was thinking about Ian Fleming earlier today, and so I saw that and thought, Jamaica. What? Jamaica. Jamaica. Yeah. Okay. You don't. You're not familiar with Ian Fleming's weird voice, author of James Bond. Yeah. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Sure. Yep. His like weird, weird voice in Jamaica. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> he did a lot of writing in Jamaica. Yeah, he sure did. One of his first Bond novels was originally going to be titled The Undertaker's Wind. Yeah. So he was um, like, yeah, he was just like a huge racist that living off the living out the like yep. um, the last gasps of the empire uh, on Jamaica. So in Jamaica. Archaeologist E.K. Agorsa was the uh, first to examine the archaeological um, 
record of Jamaican Maroons. Agorsa was born in Ghana, which is in West Africa, and began his studies on Maroons while still at the University of the West Indies in Mona, Jamaica. Uh, Jamaica was the destination of a high percentage of enslaved Africans from the Gold Coast, most of which lies within present-day Ghana. So his research covered many aspects of maroon life, but two of his findings are particularly relevant for archaeological research. The first being uh, that he found lots of similarities between the maroon settlements and Ghanaian rural villages, especially in the layout of villages and the use of domestic space within households. Um, and, and secondly, um, and this is something that, um, is apparently controversial. Yeah. I didn't dive into this, the alleged controversy because I did not have time, but like controversial with whom? Like among researchers? Yeah. Among among, researchers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not like this view gets him canceled. It's like there is an argument about whether this is true. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, Okay. Uh, so he he contends that the Arawak people uh, survived on Jamaica well after the island's English colonization. So the historical narrative for the Jamaican indigenous inhabitants is that the Spanish completely completely decimated those populations long before the English invaded it. Be like decimated in the actual sense of decimated, where the ten percent of them were gone. Or I mean, like destroyed, so like so wiped out. So is the idea that there were no. There were um, no Arawak survivors, yeah. To, like even so, it was depopulated when the English got there. That I mean, that has been the narrative, yes. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but but as we saw many 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 episodes ago when we talked about the Taino, um, and our like myriad discussions of the Aztec, Inca, and Maya populations, it's that uh, that's maybe not the case. Yeah, there might still be people of Arawak heritage. Yep. Yeah. And also that feels like a good, um, just like a good out for the British. Oh yeah. Like, oh, no, we empty. just found it. This yeah, place it was, was here. It was empty um, when we got here. It's fine. Uh, which like, there are a couple places they found that are like that. Sure. Like the Falklands and South Georgia Island. And yeah, it was just some sheep on them. If that, yeah. Mm. Um, so, uh, moving on to the Dominican Republic, uh, where I will quote from Singleton again. Uh, two artifacts diagnostic of slave runaway presence were recovered from caves in Bajaruco. Yeah. One is a fotuto, a flute-like instrument made from a conch. I say conch. Yeah. Uh, um, primarily associated with the indigenous peoples of many parts of the Americas. Uh, slave runaways appropriated fotutus and appear to have used them for communication, perhaps to warn others of impending danger, such as a troop of slave catchers. The other artifact is a fragment of an iron chain, either part of an arm, a part of arm or leg irons used to restrain enslaved individuals. Yeah, and so it's somehow more impactful to have these specific artifacts, um, partially because it's very, very difficult to recreate the material lives of people who only really used organic materials. So, so much of that physical stuff that would tell us about people's lives is gone. And yet the things that survive are still, they still have so much resonance and so much importance because sort of the, the, I don't know, the, the more permanent parts of, of life are things that came from the world of enslavement. Um, or or were necessi- necessitated by like the, yeah the the less ephemeral materials yeah like that's what I mean yeah um, so let's take one more quick ad break um, and then we'll come back and we'll do a little bit of thinking thinking about thinking. Mm. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. And so I want to give us something to chew over for the last few minutes of this episode. 
This is a quote from culturalsurvival.org from a 2001 article by Richard Price. Remember him? I sure do. Yeah. And so I think we mentioned this up top, but culturalsurvival.org is a, is a page that advocates for indigenous groups and, and sort of their voices. And, and usually it's written by someone who is like a descendant community member. Usually. Or like a, a yeah. member of the community. So, Yeah. Hmm. It's a good resource, but in this case, uh, hmm. this, this, this article is a little bit of an outlier. Hmm. Mm. Quote, During the past several decades, anthropological fieldwork has underlined the strength of historical consciousness among the descendants of these rebel slaves and the dynamism and originality of their cultural institutions. Meanwhile, historical scholarship on Maroons has flourished as new research has done much to dispel the myth of the docile slave. Marinage represents a major form of slave resistance, whether accomplished by lone individuals, by small groups, or in great collective rebellions. Throughout the Americas, Maroon communities stood out as a heroic challenge to white authority, as the living proof of the existence of a slave consciousness that refused to be limited by the white's conception or manipulation of it. So we'll, we'll break that down in a minute. So just hold on to that for a second. Um, and then as, as something of a response or maybe an addition to this, this is sort of the counterpart thing that I wanted to talk about from Dan Sayers. This is from the abstract of an article from 2012 that was published in Historical Archaeology. So, quote, National academic and public discourses have long misinterpreted relevant phenomena, such as the Underground Railroad, in ways that undermine the realization of the expansiveness, historical gravity, and African diasporic roots of marinage in the U.S. There is thus a need for a perspective on the phenomenon of marinage in the U.S. that accurately recognizes its origins, scope, scale, and complexity. And so the purpose of this particular article is, as Sayers goes on to, to write, um, he proposes a model for the consistent excavation and analysis of artifacts from maroon sites in order to make those data sets co comparable across the huge region where, where those communities existed, which, you know, is, is part of the goal of, of bringing to light these stories of these communities is it doesn't really help, um, if methods across archaeological sites are different because then it becomes an issue of, well, is this reconstruction actually comparable with any of the other reconstructions of maroon sites because the archaeology was performed differently? So consistency in, in method is really important. But the thing that I wanted to kind of close with is I, I, I sort of wanted to um, take sort of a literal page out of um, Sam Redman's book and, and kind of try to leave this episode with a, with a now what? kind of thought because it seems like the the next kind of movement in the anthropology of these cultures is for members of those communities and and members of the descendant communities to kind of become the voices of those communities to become the the anthropologists and archaeologists who who deal with these materials and i was sort of wondering if we would see a shift towards um members of maroon communities kind of focusing on on that heritage or if that, or I don't know, cause it, it does, it is extremely noticeable that the primary sources, like the, the known names of anthropologists who study maroon communities are, are two white guys. But I think that I, I'm going to push back a bit again. I was hoping you would, um, like this idea of like comparing it, to salvage anthropology mm -hmm. because this was like, sal like salvage anthropology was like began more than a century ago, like at a time when a very active uh, movement to eliminate the people that were being studied. Mm -hmm. That was, but and so like, this is now like, this is stuff within the past 10 years, like versus a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that like, I, I don't, I don't think that it's, it's, I think that if we were to make a comparison there, it would be damning of like the people who are doing that work. Um, but also I, so I, I like looked into Richard Price and Sally Price. You can go to their website, richandsally.net. <laughs> um, and they seem like 
um, nice, nice white academics. Um, but I, I wonder, so as somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about why she studies the stuff that she does and why she, um, sort of landed on the research questions that she has. I spent a lot of time wondering why other people study what they study and why other people, um, pursue their research questions. And, um, this, like there have been some like high profile cases, um, in the past couple years of, of people, uh, claiming, um, claiming indigeneity, claiming blackness, claiming, um, like a Latinx, uh, uh, identity, identity background who are just, who are, aren't that and who have, um, achieved, um, like considerable professional success within the academy and get to publish lots of books and get to teach lots of people and advise lots of people. Um, and then when they have sort of been um, unmasked, unmasked, um, there there is an understandable like outcry. But I like there's clearly something happening there with those folks that I'm not going to like try to like diagnose or sort of psychoanalyze. No, but like there's something happening there. But like I also am wondering about like like what. Um, it's just sort of like the anthropological urge to study somebody who isn't like you and become an expert on somebody you're not and then be in a position of like relative uh, supremacy over others mm. in terms of like, like the, like this is sort of the construction of knowledge and the packaging of knowledge and the like access to knowledge is controlled by, uh, like white academics. And this is something that, um, was starting to, um, I think that the big case at Harvard, um, the, the ongoing, um, the sexual harassment and, yep. and sort of, um, what's been happening there with the Komarovs, um, which is a, a couple of two anthropologists who are Africanists, um, uh, and, but not African. Right, right. But like there was a large contingent of people who rallied around them and supported them. And you start to see the um, the, the veneer slips a little bit mm-hmm. off of folks. And and so there is like this is something that really troubles me because it isn't as though there aren't um, uh, black students there. Yeah. It, it isn't as though there aren't descendants of maroon communities who have, who, who want to do that research, be historians of that subject. Yeah. And there are some, there, there's at least one, um, descendant community member who is a historian who's featured in that video. So I know that, that at least Dan Sayers works with. Yeah. And it does in that, that work does seem to work with, with descendant communities, but just having, um, but, but just, I guess what I'm, what I, think about more here is just like why um well it it feels it feels white saviory um, sure and and that's something that um you know maybe I just need to do some self-crit when I think like that you know like are the times actually maybe I'm coming around on your comparison to salvage anthropology like are the times actually that different um and that you have um, you, you have, uh, white academics from like affluent academics from Ivy league institutions from, or like R1 institutions that have tons of research funding that get to, uh, be PIs on huge grants from federal grant making bodies that get to, to do this work. And, um, like I, this is, I can't make this an individual sort of slam because this is something that's pervasive like why are you the like why like why are you the primary author why are you not uh bringing like like what are you doing in terms of um fixing the so-called leaky pipeline yeah like um how are you actually helping like are you helping 
Are you doing outreach and, and providing like material support to these community organizations? Are you, or are you just like writing articles that are published behind paywalls and then like doing like blog posts yeah. that, um, so you can like feel good, but it's, but it is and just so your funding institution can like check on you and be like, ah, we did that. Yeah. And so it, the whole thing is like, this is something that kind of brings into focus for me a lot of stuff that always just kind of like kind of like grates on me um and like you know it sort of runs along the continuum of bums me out to enrages me Mm -hmm. um how familiar i am with what's what's happening um and like depending on like what people are doing and what those academics are doing but it is something like it's a it's a what a privilege it is to be able to study someone else's life and like and it's sort of unfathomable to me to like walk away from that and being like I know about it but but also um something that I saw in the notes um that you were that that you mentioned was um this idea of excavating communities inhabited by people that use mostly ephemeral materials mm-hmm. and that didn't have um, like long uh, like stuff that would survive like the stuff that they're using they're using organic materials they're in a climate that doesn't that oh, yeah. like decomposition maybe, happens maybe very the quickly worst for yeah preservation. Like, like like swampy warm places uh, that like don't really provide like anaerobic yeah uh, it's not of, a peat bog yeah it's a swamp yeah and so like that's something that um, that's a really like that's a really great point that you made, and that's a really the in the show in the notes <laughs> for the well, episode. I made, it, well, I made um, it out loud. Yeah, yeah, also, yeah, yeah. Into but, this but microphone, sort of like thinking about like other places where that's ha- where that happens, mm-hmm. and like and the effects of that. And I think that it's something that um, in like it 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 fits into that kind of old model of of civilization. of of like to be civilized to be civilized you must be able to like work metal or or like have have large scale like like, yeah production exactly like and there's just evidence there's evidence of you living here yeah um and so to not leave that evidence um is like that's but but i i don't like I i think it's sort of like circular logic to say um people like people who have like people who live um, nomadic or semi-nomadic or live in sedentary communities that only that that only utilize like ephemeral materials um, they are uh, less less advanced less civilized less whatever like whatever word you want to use to make yourself feel like you aren't saying civilized just because you know that that's a bad word, but you don't actually have a different thought. <laughs> you just know that's not what you're supposed to think. Um, that like that that feeds into um, the idea that um, that so you know they've got less stuff, and that makes them less civilized they're less civilized so they produce less stuff and we study less of it so the less we know about them the less we know that they had stuff the less civilized they are and it's it's a it's it's circular it's circular logic because and so there's like if and if you're just content with that um implicitly or explicitly um you you just kind of leave it at that and be like oh yeah they did that and you just don't think about it like that's what it is it's not so much um, thinking that someone is inferior, it's not thinking about them at all, yeah. um, which is something that um, has has factored into like my studies of uh, Southwestern Asia and where um, like Arabia, yeah, <laughs> like, so empty, it, yeah, and this idea that that like because they don't because you can't map your your conception of, of, of social organization and social complexity, you can't map that easily onto someone else's, uh, like some other lives yeah. that, that they just like, you just throw it out as like an outlier. Like yeah. it's just like data that you can That's throw not, out. That's not society. Yeah. Which like mm. also like that is, and, and that's that, and like ha- needing sort of, 
needing something to, you needing to excavate something in order to accept that something like that someone that lived. people lived in a yeah, spot for like hundreds of very, years like that that um to me that smacks of and perhaps just is uh what's called positivism mm-hmm. and positivist approaches to archaeology um the, those really come through in like processual like the sort of the profess- processional wave of of archaeology but um so uh, in in terms of being positivist, that means that the only mm, the only valid knowledge that there can be, the only things that you can actually know, um, comes through um, empiricism. It has to be something that can be measured and can be quantified Observed. and can like can be like recorded. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that you can use. Uh, for, but also, but like, that's the only thing that matters because anything outside of interpret, outside of that is interpretation and is, um, the, like, it's, it's not real. It's invalid. Like, that's what it, it's invalid. And so, and that these, like, yeah, and not like, not right, even like, like going beyond invalid to like, well, like to, to do it, to do it is incorrect, but it, it's just like invalid data. You just yeah. didn't get it through a valid means. And so, um, having a positivist approach is it, it's, it's, a, it, you're looking at human experience as a game of the Sims where like yeah, people are propelled forward <laughs> by forces around them and these are like quantifiable forces um the the sort of the inverse of positivism is is sort of is uh interpretivism and this idea of that like and, and sort of getting into a bit more postmodern things where like we can't actually know anything sort of sort of idea but the the um positivist thinking is um uh, I mean, put simply, it's crap. Like it, it just sucks um, because it is something that um, it gets to choose what is valid and what is invalid, and like, and it also doesn't does not have any room for um, consciousness, for will, for autonomy, for agency. Yeah. Um, like it, like positivist approaches to archaeology do not allow humans their humanity and you think would sort of you know uh obstruct the whole purpose of archaeology i don't think so i think because i think that it comes down to like it's like an ontology thing like why are you doing this right and so if what you're doing is to try to solve the past Mm. You want it to be clean. You want it to be a science. This is what happened with anthropology. No, I understand this. I just, yeah. And like wanting to be science, like, and, and this desire to be right. Quantify everything. It, like, if that's what you're doing, you're, you don't care about, like, it's, it's easier to, to just reject the sort of softer things and the more nebulous things about human experience than it is to say, than it is to admit that you don't know something. Right. And, and so I think that, um, in cases like this, um, where like the entire, um, like, I don't want to be too reductive, but like the entire, like, the entire existence of a maroon community is predicated on an assertion of their humanity um, and their humanness <laughs> yeah. um, to take any kind of positivist like approach to that past yeah. is to continue denying them their humanity. Yeah. And, and it is an extension like, like in, in my mind, I see a thread from the institution of chattel slavery to the like underfunding and like overriding and um, and sort of uh, any kind of um, underserving underserving. Yeah. Of those descendant communities and yeah. and investigating their development and and histories. Yeah, there's so, so there's an interesting, I mean, just to kind of bring this back around, the fact that the primary project leaders of of these 
projects that focus on communities for which there are descendants and and some of those um descendants definitely work with archaeologists mm-hmm. but just sort of the being aware like when you're encountering archaeological stories when you are learning who does the archaeology and of whom keep in mind that often a power balance a, rather mm-hmm. a power imbalance is a major part of the context and and it's really really good in archaeology to think of systems of power and who is doing the research who gets to do the research who gets to interpret the data who gets to publish the data and who gets to access what's published yeah uh, these are all factors that play into kind of the, the gap between academia and community and yeah. and and like is like this is a perfect example of, of why uh, sort of engaged and community archaeology is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also um, I find it I find it kind of beautiful in a like almost literary sense that um, like beat my dead horse of a thought about positivism. But like the sort of that that original archaeological sort of impetus and like sort of the 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 drive to like be positive and like quantify something get some like evidence of something Mm -hmm. um that doesn't really work in this context because and and that like doing that doesn't allow you to access humanity when in fact like when when in in re in sort of reality in the past these communities the one thing that they had the most of was their humanity yeah. And so like maybe archaeology is not archaeology as it is done, as it is understood, as it um, is taught, isn't the thing. Like as as praxis, as like. like yeah, like isn't isn't what, what isn't where it's at for nope, tackling this question. Yeah. Uh, because um, it, like until and, and so, you know, we want to talk about how like I like I also didn't totally understand the. um the bit about um, trying to like regularize archaeological methods around the region to like have like oh. I like like pooling data. No, it, well, or, yes, like, it's it's establishing that the methods of data collection are the same across sites, so that the the data can be pooled, and so you can talk about larger regional or kind of systemic trends. Yeah, um, and so what I mean is like for example. If at a site they used uh, meter by meter squares and sifted their their sediments through a you know a two millimeter screen, like that would mean that objects smaller than two millimeters are not counted. But if there's another site that is screening their stuff through uh, a quarter inch screen, okay, then they're gonna miss out on a lot of the smaller. Um, you know, remnants, debris yeah. of, of sort of material, archaeological materials. Okay. Yeah. So it's really just literally making sure that the methods of collecting artifacts and, and tagging artifacts and, um, screening and washing and, and sort of all of the little actions that go into a- assembling a data set for a particular site, if all of those are the same, then it is much easier to establish that your data sets are comparable across a wider region or a wider sort of historical yeah. area, like the vast area where where slavery was, um, you know, part yeah, of the, yeah, the economy. The Americas, yeah. yeah. Like, um, yeah, okay. sorry. I, I'm glad you, you had me clarify that. I'm, yeah, yeah. Thank you, audience. Like, sorry, Cause yes. I was just like, I, I thought we figured that out. No, I, but no, but no, that's, <laughs> I thought we like, no, no. kind of like got to like, this is how archaeology happens. Um, but okay. That no, makes the much a lot more like nitpicky things about how archaeology happens, yeah. like, like the screen size at which archaeology right. happens. Yeah. Right. Okay. Which, um, yeah, matters a lot in, in contexts like this where you don't have uh, much, much else. Yeah. So thank you again, Melanie, for writing in. Really interesting. Get us to think about this. I'm still thinking about it. I think I'm I'm going to be thinking about it for a while. Maybe the takeaway point here is just anytime you see anyone talking about any society, just assume that it's more complex than what there's evidence for. (laughs) 
Is that? Yeah. Well, I, that, and then like my takeaway here is like, think long and hard about why it is that you're interested in the things you're interested in. Yeah. Just think about it. Does a body good. So that's going to do it for this episode. Keep your ears peeled though, because there's a bonus episode coming to the main feed. Mm. Um, you can also find us with new content every week at any of the places where you get your podcasts and also at the dirtpod.com, our website. And we're also on social media. Amber, where can folks find us on social media? Um, they can find us over on Facebook. Uh, it, we're at the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are the Dirt Pod. And all of those are fed directly to our website, thedirtpod.com, where you can also, also find merch. You can find all of the bibliographic resources from National Geographic all the way through to peer reviewed journal articles. Um, Sign up for your 100 free JSTOR articles and you're good to go. Um, and more is on thedirtpod.com. So go check us out there. Yeah. And and thanks for listening, everybody. And thank and until, you, Melanie. And thank you, Melanie. And until next week, I will be um, yelling uh, from Anna's loft and Anna's bedroom and Anna's front porch. <laughs> What? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make you feel at home. I'm just gonna yell along with all your cats. We're all just gonna they yell. They do. They're just a very yelly bunch. Just a yelly bunch of pets. A, um, but yeah, it's so cacophony of cats. Take take care, everyone. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You can also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.